This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm going to be talking about what it's like for children who have suffered early damage to their hippocampi, the memory structures of the brain, um, to grow up without episodic memory. So just to give you an idea of what episodic memory is all about, it appears to be an exquisite cognitive system which has recently evolved in modern humans. It's a late developing function, and unfortunately, it's an early declining one as well in old age. It's oriented towards past memories that we have accumulated over a lifetime, and is vulnerable to neurological injury. Incredibly, it enables us to mental time travel to the past and also to plan for the future. It allows us conscious re-experience of personal autobiography, and maybe it's unique to humans. This constellation of incredible abilities that we humans possess is dependent on a brain structure called the hippocampus, which you can see on the right-hand side of the slide in blue. And episodic memory is dependent on the integrity of this structure. You see also the amygdala, shown in orange, behind the head of the hippocampus, called the ancus. And the amygdala is the center for regulation of our emotions. Hippocampus appears to be critical for our memories. So... What are the risks to the integrity of the hippocampus, particularly during early development? Oxygen deprivation seems to be one of the critical factors that can expose babies when they come into the world for a variety of reasons to early hippocampal pathology. One type of risk is children who have congenital heart defects and uh, they require open-heart surgery during the first days of life because of various anomalies of the heart that needs to be set right. Extreme prematurity seems to be another kind of risk factor because of the lung insufficiency, and also babies who have to be put on heart-lung machine in order to give time to the clinicians to treat them appears to be yet another risk factor. Whatever the etiology is, exposure to lack of oxygen appears to start a chain of reactions which is in a causal sequence. It starts from oxygen deprivation, leading specifically to damage of the hippocampal structures, and then in turn leading to the emergence of a memory problem later in childhood which can range from moderate to developmental amnesia, which I will be describing in a minute. So I wanted to give you a feeling for the trajectory of cognitive development after such injury occurs. Parents are usually extremely happy because their children have passed this critical stage of very being seriously ill, and they think that everything is over because physically the children actually make a very good recovery. So from birth to two years, they develop normally, and they acquire all their developmental milestone as expected. Between the ages of two to three years, they develop good speech and language abilities. 
They go to nursery school, they learn songs, they learn rhymes, their motor development is normal, and really parents don't suspect that anything is wrong at all. Then, around three or four years of age, they start preschool programs, and there they excel as well. They have developed sight reading, they do copying and drawing, and they do all kinds of um, normal developmental milestones and they achieve as normal children would. However, around the age of four to eight years, they start showing the first signs of an amnesic syndrome. They forget their belongings, they start repeating questions, they forget instructions, they forget messages, they tend to get lost in new places, they appear to be confused, and they are unable to remember their lessons. This is very strong evidence that they're growing into a deficit which only becomes apparent with increasing age. And this is the way the, typically the children present to my clinic when they come, because the parents don't understand where this problem actually came from. So the parent usually says, my child seems to be living at the moment doesn't seem to be bothered by the past or the future and cannot plan for anything. The child seems to have a flat affect, and that's important to note. They're not demanding children. They're very easy to live with. And for those of us who have children, we know what it's like when a child wants something. They won't let go of the idea until they get it. Well, these children are not like that. They forget what they want. They're also very disorganized. The teacher says that they're very friendly and polite, but they're too laid back. And they seem very able, but when it comes to the crunch, they can't deliver. And the patient says, I listened in class and I understood everything that was said, but a little later, I couldn't remember anything. So you have to realize that there is no neurological symptoms. This is a silent damage that shows its symptoms, and there's no evidence of any kind of neurological abnormality. So we start assessing these children to first neuropsychologically find out what the problems are. And we discover that there's a set of weaknesses that they all have, and there's a set of strengths. The set of weaknesses are defined by inability to be able to remember the events of their life. They are unable to recall and they also do not recollect. Recollect is a very subjective experience, but they don't seem to even understand the concept of recollection. On the other hand, they have strengths. They have fantastic factual memory. They're like a dictionary of knowledge, but without context. They have very good recognition, so that if they have seen something and you show it in a multiple choice fashion to them, they know which one it is that they have seen before. And they have a sense of familiarity. The neural substrate of their weaknesses appears to be a very marked but fairly selective bilateral hippocampal atrophy. On the other hand, the set of strength seems to be the integrity of the parahippocampal cortex, which appears to be relatively preserved. So our first task, after having neuropsychologically assessed these children and shown these dissociations, there are three of them, three dissociations, 
Our next task was to actually verify that there really was damage to the hippocampus because all these weaknesses that I have described are actually dependent on the integrity of the hippocampus. So we needed to be able to demonstrate that the hippocampus is in fact damaged. What you see here is zero is set at the volumes of a large group of normal controls. And then in black, you see the volumes of the hippocampi in the normal controls. Then you see the volumes of the orange cases. These are cases with moderate degree of hippocampal pathology ranging from 15% to 25% of normal. And then you move to the left-hand side where you see the red bars. The red bars are individual cases of amnesic patients that we have seen. And as you can see, reductions above 30% to 75% actually counts as severe enough to warrant the kind of amnesic syndrome that I have described. So you can see the significant difference between the three groups there. The moderates and the controls are not significantly different from each other, but the amnesic patients are. Below that, you see the volumes of the amygdala. Unlike the volumes of the hippocampus, the volumes of the amygdala are not reduced. Here, you see the work of Loïc Charignon, who has been measuring the volumes of the hippocampal subfields. Although the entire hippocampus is reduced in volume bilaterally, the magnitude of the impairment or magnitude of the reduction is far more pronounced towards the posterior part of the hippocampus. In fact, the head of the hippocampus, the uncus, is relatively spared. And then you see the other subfields are also significantly reduced in volume. So what does this do to a child who comes into the world seemingly normal because they've recovered from their injury that they've had, apparently, but they do develop normally in many ways except in this memory domain that I have just mentioned. Here you see the cognitive profile of patients with developmental amnesia during early childhood and later on as adults. So there are 18 of them that have been studied and they're matched with 18 controls. The age range is from 11 to 35 and the most remarkable thing here is the mean memory quotient of this group is 61, which is in the significantly impaired range, compared to their mean uh, memory quotient of the normal controls, which is 108. These are standard scores. On the right-hand side, you see the performance of the amnesic group relative to the control group on these measures of full-scale IQ, working memory, literacy, and numeracy. So immediately it's obvious that these children have developed these skills without the aid of the hippocampus. So these skills are not dependent on the integrity of the hippocampus. So what do they have problems with? Well, they have problems with episodic memory, and that is captured in this test, which actually asks for them to remember a name, a belonging, a route, a simple route, recalling a story, an appointment, pictures of faces, messages, etc. But when you look at their ability to be able to associate semantic items together or to remember vocabulary, they do extremely well as normal. 
So this is the first dissociation that we are able to see very easily in these patients. The second dissociation is an inability to be able to recall, but a very good ability to be able to recognize. This is tested through a um, paradigm that has been developed by Alan Badley and his colleagues, where he presents for recall verbal items such as remembering a name and a profession of individuals, four individuals actually, repeatedly presented for recall, and in the nonverbal uh, domain, they're asked to uh, copy shapes, simple shapes as you can see there, for nonverbal recall over three trials, and then they have to recall them. For recognition, they're given a very difficult test of verbal recognition, where a list of 24 words of names of individuals is presented to them, and then later on, they're given multiple choice for each of these items. That's for verbal recognition. And for nonverbal recognition, they're shown a list of 24 doors, and then later on they're given four alternative choices of very similar doors, and they have to identify which one they had seen before. So if we look at the performance of the amnesic patients relative to controls, we see that for recognition, both verbal and nonverbal, they're actually doing very well compared to the controls but there's a disproportionately reduced performance when it comes to recall, where they cannot recall the names and the professions of those individuals that they had seen, nor able to recall the shapes that they had learned. And this ability to recognize is not correlated with the volume of the hippocampus, as you can see on the right-hand side of the screen, but it is correlated significantly with the volume of the hippocampus for both verbal recall and nonverbal recall. So this is the second dissociation. Now we move to the third dissociation, which is actually very difficult to demonstrate. The reason is that recollection is a subjective experience. And if we ask the patients to recollect something, they don't even understand what the term means because they've never been able to do it. They don't even understand what recollection experience is like. But it is bringing mind to something that they have experienced before. So Emreduzel, in collaboration with our group, tried to get a neurophysiological record of recollection. This is an EEG experiment, an evoke response experiment, whereby the patients were presented with a list of words, about 80 of them, and they had to judge each word and say whether they, it, they found it to be pleasant or unpleasant. And then later on, at test, they were given another list of 80 words mixed in with the words that they had seen before, and they had to judge whether it was a word that had been seen before or not. So it's a recognition paradigm, which they should be good at, but they have to recollect. And at the same time, the uh, EEG is being recorded. So what you can see on the left-hand side of the screen is that in the time window, in the early time window, we get this modulation, which is called the N400 modulation, and this modulation is associated with the feeling of familiarity. Something appears familiar. It doesn't involve recollection. 
But later time window, around 600 milliseconds, you get the second modulation, which is called the left positive component. This left positive component is supposed to reflect the generators of the hippocampus, which gives you a feeling of recollection so that you can remember whether you found it pleasant or not. And as you can see, in the normal controls, you see these two modulations, both the early one and the late one. But when it comes to the patient with developmental amnesia, you get the early modulation, but the late positive component is missing. Similarly, when you look at the topographic scalp distribution of early versus late evoke responses, you see that the N400 effect is present in the controls, but it's also present in the DA patients. But the late positive component, which is a reflection of recollection, is present in the controls, but it's blue and absent in the DA patient. So this is a measure that, of course, as I say, it's a measure of a subjective experience, and a subjective experience is very difficult to capture by behavior. So we next turn to um, an fMRI experiment, which is even more complicated, but I'll try and simplify it for you. It's using a paradigm of paired associates. Paired associates is a paradigm that really requires the hippocampus's engagement. So patients are shown, patients and controls are shown a word paired with a scene, and they have to try and remember the pairing of the word with that scene. And some of the scenes are urban scenes, and some of them are rural scenes. So they see a huge number of these words paired with scenes. And then afterwards, they go into the um, scanner, and you can see that their performance is actually uh, very poor. Compared to controls who are significantly above chance, they get chance-level performance. But when we unexpectedly, we did not expect this, but when we actually look at the activation in the brain, we see that the activation is very similar to that of the normal. On the, in the, on the uh, normal controls, you see activation in the parahippocampal cortex and in the retrospedial cortex, which is the network of scene reinstatement. And in the patients, you get almost exactly the same uh, pattern of activation. However, their brain remembers, but they cannot remember the performance themselves, as indicated through the button pressing that they have to do. So I'll quickly go to the next one to, to summarize. So what are the memory processes in developmental amnesia then? We know that they can encode. We know that they can consolidate. We know that they can retrieve, but only through recognition and familiarity not through the hippocampal-dependent processes of recall and recollection. This then gives them the so-called deprivation that they cannot really subjectively experience their autobiography. So what is autonoetic uh, consciousness? It's the human ability to mentally traverse across time and be able to examine one's own thoughts and the sense of self that affects our behavior in the present, past, and future. Best captured by this passage from Tayyard de Chardin, where he says, in the passage of time, a state of collective human consciousness has been progressively evolved 
which is inherited by each succeeding generation of conscious individuals and to which each generation adds something. That seems to be a type of experience that patients with developmental amnesia do not possess. But I don't want to leave this giving you the impression that it's all negative. In fact, it's very uplifting because I was having a conversation with one of our patients and I was asking him whether his memory was a problem for him. And he said, no, my memory is not a problem for me. It's a problem for you. (laughs) So I said, well, how come? Don't your friends get upset with you because you can't remember your appointments? You don't do the things that you've promised them to do? He says, no, on the contrary, my friends are very happy with me. I said, how come? He says, well, for one thing, I don't carry a grudge. (laughs) So I thought, really, our memories are a gift, and we have to use it for the power of good. Thank you very much for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.